Welcome to Waco, American Apocalypse, the Netflix podcast companion series. I'm Tiller Russell, director and executive producer of the series. We wanted to make this podcast to accompany the show because we realized that there were some incredible moments that took place in these interviews that didn't end up fitting into the series. So we realized that this podcast was an opportunity to tell a different kind of story, one that allowed us to stop down and really look closely at certain details from the time and to examine the people who lived it. With me today is Lee Hancock, who is a prominently featured interview subject in the series and probably the premier journalist who has covered the story. She was there at the time writing for the Dallas Morning News and has, for the last 30 years, continued to cover Waco. She has been an integral collaborator to making the series and over the course of it has also become a good friend. So welcome, Lee, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's start a little bit with... um, I guess the background of this and, and kind of how this series has evolved from when we started to, to where we ended up now. When we first sat down to do this, I, I was actually very um, conflicted about whether or not to tackle this series because I sort of felt like, um, you know, what new is there to say about this story and why is the story kind of continued to have importance for the world? And I think where I came to personally anyway, Lee, is that it seems like this story in, you know, there's the the sort of old saw that, you know, kind of newspapers and the daily press is the, you know, kind of the rough draft of history, the, uh, the telling of something. And it feels like even from, from day one, the story was kind of this political football where everybody was pointing fingers at one another asking like who screwed this up how did this happen and um and it was it's been a story that has had kind of politics attached to it and judgment attached to it it's never been told in a completely humanist way where it's not about who did what wrong, but more about what is it like as a human being to be caught in the maws of history in some way or another, and whether you're an FBI sniper or a hostage negotiator or one of David Koresh's wives or the last kid out alive, just looking at the story without judgment and instead with, I suppose, a kind of wonder and, and, and fascination with what is this like? You know, what did it, what did it feel like? And I remember, you know, early discussions with you, Lee, and just the kind of, I guess, the complexity and nuance in the story, that's what really captivated me. And it made me want to sit down with everybody now and with a little bit of distance, you know, a significant amount of distance, really, and sort of say, what was this human experience? And so let's allow people to have reflection and some distance on what happened and to sort of contrast their perspectives now with um, the perspectives that they had then. And I guess my first question for you is, you know, now 30 years distant from this, like what is your, what's the most fundamental um, distinction in the way you feel or apprehend, you know, this story, uh, you know, as distinct from how you did at the time? 
Well, you know, at the time that we were covering this as journalists in Waco, you know, it was episodic. It was um, limited in what we could understand. You know, there were there was no way to get at um, all of the players and all of their motivations and everything that was happening. And then immediately afterwards, you know, the blame game. Um, really took off. And to some extent, it really continues to this day. Um, but with some time and perspective, you know, the, the longer, you know, I've, I've considered all of the characters and all of the different turns of the thing, it, you know, the more I've appreciated the complexity of it. And, you know, there is so much about this that revolves around not the facts of what happened, which are complicated, but also the belief systems that collided because you had um, the Davidians, obviously, with their belief system that was poorly understood by most people who were out there at the time, um, you know, and certainly the FBI and um, others in the federal government gradually became, began to understand it. But, you know, there was a very limited viewpoint that they could have. And the media certainly in the same way. We were very limited. And, you know, the Davidians also had their limited point of view, um, arguing facts. But, you know, digging into the belief systems, it, I don't know, it, it became much more interesting to me, you know, how each of these groups collided with one another, misunderstood each other, and were... You know, I don't want to say complicit, but all played a role in in what went wrong and, you know, the ultimate end of this thing. So I guess as I've looked at this over time, I've begun more and more to appreciate the complexity of it. And there really is no answer to, okay, who is the bad guy here? Um, You know, there are a lot of people that want to demonize David Koresh and certainly Koresh is a complicated figure. I, you know, I have some pretty strong feelings about him, but he also was a very charismatic leader whose believers truly believed that he was Christ. And you will have some negotiators who will talk about the fact they think he was a con man, that some other negotiators and some FBI agents will say he actually believed this. So, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's hard to get your arms around a simple story with this. This is a broken narrative, if you will. All right, that's great. And we're going to hear from those guys later on saying what they believed in the moment. You also had, within the Davidians themselves, they had had um, a schism with some followers leaving and then trying to get authorities for several years to come in and look at allegations of wrongdoing with the Davidians. Um, There were allegations of child abuse, you know, Koresh betting and marrying kids as young as 10 or 12. They had all of these, you know, uh, building tensions within themselves. And then as a result of some of that, you know, probably that's a lot of what may have led Koresh to start arming himself. And he had he had a, enough armaments in there for a small army uh, by the time this all broke out. Well, and the, and the important thing, I think, to add there is that 
you know, the 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 Branch Davidians as a religious group, you know, really had existed for a long, you know, long preceding David Koresh, you know, I think all the way back to the 30s, if I'm not mistaken, in, in uh, you know, in, in the areas. Isn't that right, Lee? Yeah. And they, they had come there from Los Angeles and they had gone through several cycles of predicting the, the apocalypse is nigh. And, and then that was followed by disappointments where it didn't happen. They had had a succession of leaders who had been preaching that sort of thing to a group of people, primarily uh, coming out of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Um, their their founder, which, which has which has a strong kind of end times current running through it as a defining aspect of of, of Seventh Day Adventism, and, right? And right, and not everybody, but a number of these people who came to the group, and Koresh himself actually went to this program called. Uh, Revelation, where they went and studied for four to six weeks what was going to happen at the end of time. Uh, Koresh was incredibly influenced that by that as a young um, man. He was in his uh, teenage years and started really digging into the Bible, you know, inspired by this these prophecies that the, the end was very close and this is what it was going to look like. And, um, and when he asked... Um, some other members of the church in East Texas where he could find people who were more immersed in the Bible, he ended up going to Waco and joining the Davidians. And he's also, as I understand it, he was intensely dyslexic and so kind of very much, uh, you know, marginalized as a, as, a, as, a, as a young kid and as a, as a student coming up. I mean, first when he shows up in Waco, he was considered a, you know, just sort of a goof. He, you know, he was a carpenter. He sometimes slept in his car. He was scroungy. He didn't speak very well, but he had this facility to memorize not just parts of the Bible, but the entire Bible. And what people said they realized increasingly that was that, you know, many preachers will talk about this verse or that verse from the outside of the book itself. But what his followers said would, was that he could bring the thing alive and he would make them feel like they were actually living in um, the text itself, that he could take Daniel and Ezekiel and then Revelation and tie together these things that, you know, were mysterious. And yet at the same time, speaking within the context of the Seventh-day Adventists, he would refer to the seven seals and, you know, uh, most lay people, even people that are immersed in their own denominations of the Christian church would go, well, what's that? But to the Adventist, that was a very important part, perhaps the most important part of the Bible. In Revelation, you know, it foretold of the lamb who could come and unseal the seven seals. That was going to be the Christ bringing the second coming. Now, Koresh didn't immediately say, I'm the guy who can do this. He gradually became a preacher and then was acknowledged as a prophet and then came to preach and his believers came to believe that he could unseal these mysterious seven seals by taking, as you said, this part of the Bible and that part of the Bible, individual verses, and tying them together into a whole that his followers began to believe they were living in in real time.
essentially, th this is a, you know, within the Branch Davidians and, and within uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, there is a continuing tradition of living prophets, which is to say that the Word of God has not necessarily ended with what's in the Bible, but it continues among living prophets who are continuing to bring messages and illumination um, to the world. And so it, it like, for, for the folks that are kind of outside of this, it, like, and for whom this seems, you know, um, fantastic and, and hard to imagine and hard to believe. For those that are raised within it, it's actually a very logical kind of extension of a belief system that exists, which is that of living prophets, which I think is an important point to make. And that we are um, also in the last days. All right, so let's take a closer look at David Koresh as he's described by the people who were there at the time. It's fascinating to hear how he was loved, hated, revered, mocked, respected, all at the same time, and sometimes by the same person. And I think that by hearing those different perspectives, we can begin to triangulate a clearer portrait of Koresh. We're gonna start with Heather Jones, who was the last Branch Davidian child to make it out of the compound alive. In the doc series, we can see pretty clearly that Heather has this very complex, fraught relationship with David Koresh, but we don't hear a lot of specifics about that. So let's go now to Heather in her own words as she tells us the story of her relationship with David Koresh. So, um, I remember we were all staying in one room with you know, me and my brothers and my parents, both of my parents. And David had made the rule that even if you were legally married, you were not allowed to live together or um, basically be in a relationship together anymore. It was annulled by God. And my mom didn't agree with it. My mom, my dad went along with it and, you know, believed in it and my mom didn't believe in it because she loved my dad and they had already had three kids and my mom just didn't agree with it so she packed up her stuff in the middle of the night when le one night and left how'd you feel when that happened what was that like um i kind of felt like i was abandoned but I I was like, you know, I can probably just, you know, I can just see my mom. And I remember David was sitting in the church one day alone and my mom had came to try to see me and they told her that she needed to leave, that she chose, you know, what she chose. She chose to be on the outside and she left us. And so I remember going in there and asking David, you know, if I can go out and visit my mom or see my mom. And I just remember his face just changing. And he bent over and, you know, over me and in my face. And he's like, you know, your mom chose what she chose. She chose to be out with the devil, basically. Um, she doesn't want to be here anymore. She doesn't believe in the message. And he basically told me if I wanted to go and see her, that 
I would choose the same thing and I was never allowed to, you know, have any contact with anybody else in Mount Carmel. And that's, you know, basically how it was. Did you ever see your mom and did you ever talk to her and, you know, um, did you ever ask her? You know, you said you would see her sometimes. Um, I, I saw her one time, I think. Um, a second time I, I saw her come to the property, but they told her to leave. Um, she had brought me some clothes that she made and they threw them in the trash right in front of me. I wasn't allowed to have anything from her or from out there. And like when she brought me the doll for my birthday, um, it was a Betsy Wetsy doll. And of course you squeeze it and it peed. <laughs> but uh, he made me go and get a machine gun. And he went out and set it on the, uh, a stump outside in the back of Mount Carmel. And he made, he ex sat there and had a long talk with me about why it was an why it was inappropriate. And he made me sit there and shoot it till there was like nothing left of it. So on the one hand, we've got the perspective of a child who's trying to understand what this relationship with this iconic cult leader means. And then on the other, you have Chris Whitcomb, a sniper with the hostage rescue team, who comes into this and really has to wrestle with the question, is there truth to it? Is it lies? Is it absolute bullshit? And what he does is to deeply engage with the theology itself to draw his own conclusions about that. You know, I, I don't think you can talk about this story without talking about the spiritual aspect. And spirit is not, in my estimation, always associated with religion. I think you could be a very spiritual person in whatever manner. You could worship the sunrise or daisies in a field, or you could worship whatever. I don't care what it is. I, I disassociate religion from spirituality. You cannot talk about Waco without talking about religion specifically. David Koresh talked about the Bible. A lot of it was Old Testament. A lot of it was the apocalypse. He had a giant sign inside Sierra 2, which was a painting on plywood. I think it was a four by eight sheet of plywood of the four horses of the apocalypse. And it said ranch apocalypse. And somebody had cut a hole out where the eye is on the gray horse, right? So you got the four horses of the apocalypse, you've got this thing on the front wall, and we would look out through the gray horse at the compound, because that was just something that we just put up on, against the wall. He had uh, the apocalypse painted on the gas tank of a Harley Springer. I mean, it was everywhere. And everything he talked about was the seven seals and all this apocryphal, uh, Bible-related religion. That was the centerpiece, no matter where you were, what you had to do, whether you were media or you were me behind a sniper rifle at Sierra 2, it was all a daily diet of God. Whether it was him as the second coming, 
whether it was the seven seals, whatever it was, it was wrapped around God. Well, as it sometimes happened, people involved have religion themselves. In my case, I grew up Catholic. And because of my age, when I grew up Catholic, all church services were conducted in Latin. I didn't even know what it meant until I was in college. And somewhere along the line, I fell away and I came to have an unhealthy attitude, Catholicism. And I said, but I still think highly of God, right? I wanna find a different religion. So I tried everything. One of the guys on our sniper team was a bishop in the Mormon church. He was a sniper on my team and he was a bishop in uh, uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, Latter Saints. So I talked to him. So he gave me a Book of Mormon. I read the Book of Mormon. I went back and I looked through the Gideon Bible in the hotel. Then I said, what about uh, Judaism? That sounds interesting. So I really became ensconced in that. I tried it all over time. At one point, uh, eventually, uh, after all of that, I said, you know what, I don't believe in any of it. I don't know what it is, but I don't believe any of it. So I became Gnostic. After a while, I said, you know what, I am a complete and utter atheist. I've seen so many things in my life, so much war and hatred and murder and butchery and horrible things that human beings do to each other. There can't be a God. Complete and utter atheist. And now I've cycled back where I have a more healthy respect toward spirituality, I think. At the time of Waco, I was post-Catholicism. I was still searching and I listened with great interest in everything David Koresh said. I did not judge it. I was curious. I wanted to know about the seven seals. I wanted to know about his perspectives on Jesus and on a New Testament Christian-based God versus an Old Testament God. And I did a lot of stuff. And one of the books I read, one of those 30 books I read was the Bible. You know, I would try to follow along with some of his logic. I really wanted to give it a shot. I said, what if there is something to what this guy is saying? And I gave it a fair shake. Uh, so I listened to what Koresh said in terms of theology with an open mind until I realized he was completely and utterly full of shit. He was a used car salesman who decided to try and pawn himself off as a prophet, as a savior, as the second coming of something, in my opinion, he knew nothing about. I gave him a shot and I think it made me angry when I realized it was bullshit. So everyone in the story has a very intense, complicated relationship with David Koresh, the man at the beating heart at the center of it. We heard from Chris Whitcomb and the conclusions that he drew. Now let's go to Bob Ricks, also a member of the FBI, but who has a very different perspective on David Koresh. Well, it's funny, you know, because I remember interviewing uh, Gary Nesner about it, and he said literally exactly what you said in terms of, he's like, this guy was a con man. You know, his, his I think his snap judgment mm -hmm. was, this guy was full of shit, and he's using it, you know, merely mm -hmm. to, to fool with underage girls or whatever. Right. And it's interesting, like, I'm, well, I'm curious what your reaction is to that. I, I, think, I think Gary believes that. Uh, Gary Nesner believes that uh, he was nothing but a con man? I don't. Uh, I've gone back and at, at various times uh, through different 
publications, and I, I was not even able to be privy to a lot of those. A lot of the recordings that we had inside uh, through boxes that we took in, milk cartons, uh, tapes that we sent in for, for them to review. We had listening devices. In, in listening at their most intimate conversations that they had with one another. Now, they tried to con us constantly and tried to make us believe that there were doubts. But when, you, when they talked privately, they had no doubts uh, whom they believed David Koresh was. And David Koresh reciprocated. I have no doubt that he believed he was whom he claimed to be. Now, uh, did he get extra benefits out of it? It's, it's easier for us to say this was a madman, this was a con man uh, who was able to have sex with all the women in there who could have, he could have alcohol, he could have cigarettes, he could do anything he wanted, and nobody else could do those things. That's totally illogical. Who would, who would allow something like that to occur? Who would allow their wives to have sex with David Koresh and be prohibited from having sex with their own wives. That, that's insanity. But they believed it because it was their beliefs in, 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 in David Koresh that was the key to their, their eternal salvation. And I believe not only was David lifted up and told he was this person, he may have had doubts, he was human, but I believe because of the nature of the time that he had spent and what he had overcome to rise to this level, to be head of this group, I believe he truly, he truly believed that he was the second coming. Wow. So how hard is that to contend with? I mean, how you're, here you are sitting in, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, command center, and it's like, what the fuck do you do with that? I mean, how how do you deal with that? How do you how does one tell Jesus Christ he's not Jesus Christ? How do you convince others that he's not Jesus Christ when they have told you he is Jesus Christ? How how do you how do you tell who, someone who says he is God? that he is wrong. And all he said, all you have to do is prove that I'm wrong and I'll come out of here. How do you tell God he's wrong? You can't. Right. You can't tell God he's wrong because only God knows the answers to, to all the questions. Over and over, Every time I thought I had a clear portrait of David Koresh, along would come someone new who would change my perspective once again. We heard what Bob Ricks has to say. Now let's go to Kathy Schroeder, one of David Koresh's spiritual wives who had her own complex relationship with the man at the center of this story. What was the feeling like when he was there? Was there an excitement to that or, or describe that? When David was not there, the entire property was a, a mundane job, like a store clerk. Like you're gonna do the same thing every day for the rest of your life. When David was on the property, 
it was like being a part of a Las Vegas Rockette show and you're one of the Rockettes and you're going to kick your legs as high as you can and you have no idea when the show's going to go on because you had to be ready for whatever was coming and you had no idea when and where it was coming. And it was exciting. It was, what are we going to learn? It was, there was an element of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in that hard bench listening to David for 12 hours. Yes, there was that. But while I'm on that hard bench listening to David for 12 hours, I'm going to learn something. And that's the part that kept everybody enthralled, kept everybody waiting. The visual of Vernon Howell at the time, that was his name, was very scraggly. Um, I would never have called him a professor. I would never have called him a pastor. I didn't think of him as leadership material. I thought of him as a rowdy kid, a rowdy teenage boy that just had something that he had to talk about. Um, he had long hair, he had glasses, he was not, he was skinny. He was not good looking at all, in my opinion. Um, he was gruff and I didn't care to look at the man, but I couldn't take my ears off of him. In that moment, do you know I'm going to, uh, this is God's will, and I'm going to follow the follow this wherever it goes. What's the experience? Describe the experience. In that moment, as your mind is being made up, or your heart is, is telling you what to do. I think I wrestled with what I wanted. And what my heart was telling me God wanted. My wrestle didn't last long because God always wins. And when my heart told me that God needs me to learn this, It became my job, my existence to do that. It's not just a, oh, you want to go get married? Let's tug at your heartstrings and do this thing. No, this was a, you have to listen to this guy because he is giving you truths that you won't get any other way. And they're truths about me, Kathy. They are truths that you need to know about me, 
This is my interpretation of God telling me, if you don't listen to this guy, I will declare you not listening to me. So when that goes through your head, and you've spent your whole life trying to find God, looking up into the clouds to try to find God, and then the situation is in your lap, and no matter, no longer mattered what I wanted, it only mattered that God needed me to listen to this man. So I was ready because for the first time in my life, God needed me to do something. So I did it. I changed my kids' lives, changed my life. I changed my mother's life and my sister's life. I changed a lot of lives because God told me to. No, he didn't speak to me. My head spoke to me and said, look, if you want to follow God, you better do this thing. Let's talk about that. Talk about the new light and sort of when that happens and, and kind of what that experience is like. We were all married to David. Every single one of us was married to David because David was our Christ, for better word, um, giving us the truths from God. So even Mike was married to David. Now, I don't think that it came out at that point that David was going to run around and have sex with everybody. But the fact that we were married to David did. It was already out. And it wasn't until after we moved there that it came down to the realistic point of that means you can't have sex with each other anymore because you're married to David. So if you're married to David and Kathy's having sex with Mike, that means Kathy and Mike are fornicating outside of their marriage because they're both married to David. So that reality set in shortly after we arrived, when we moved there. Um, Is that a conversation? Like, what's the conversation between you and Mike? I don't believe we had a conversation about it. I believe it was, I accepted it because, number one, I'm already pregnant with Brian. Um, number two, it sex doesn't matter to me. I could throw it out the window and not care anymore. Never did matter to me. I didn't think much of it. Okay, so I'm married to David. I didn't think I was going to be having sex with David. I just realized I wasn't going to be having sex with Mike anymore. So it really didn't mean that much to me. Um, but apparently it did to Mike. And I didn't really find this out until later. But he had conversations with other people. Um, and he was apparently um, 
advised to get rid of his pictures of me that might help him let go of the relationship. To me, I don't think I ever let go of the relationship. I don't think it was something I needed to do. I wanted Mike to have a relationship with Brian. And I didn't think that he shouldn't. But once Brian was born, I found out that Mike felt that he shouldn't have a relationship with Brian. I mean, I did get him to play with him once in a while, but he always felt like he shouldn't be doing that because he and I wanted Brian to be David's. We all wanted to be David's children. In our next episode, we'll shift our focus from David Koresh to the man who tried to stop him. Robert Rodriguez was an undercover agent with the ATF. He embedded with Koresh and the Branch Davidians and did everything in his power to try to stop the raid. But before everything was said and done, what erupted was the largest gunfight on American soil since the Civil War. Waco, American Apocalypse is a production of Netflix, Original Productions, and Tillerman Films. Producer is Jacob Miller. Executive producers are Tiller Russell, Brian Lovett, Jeff Hassler, and Jennifer Dugan. Edited by James Carroll. Special thanks to Lee Hancock.